Good morning. Uh, welcome to Grace Church. My name's Rick. Um, this week, uh, Ben, who leads the, the church, was due to, to be preaching, but has broken his wrist, and so it makes these things hard to do, you know, however you uh, apply your writing style. Um, you need hands. Uh, so do be praying for the Topless family. Um, and as I preached last week's message, and today's follows immediately after in the Exodus story, I offered in what can only be described as a fit of giddiness at Brighton's spectacular progression to the FA Cup semi-final. Come on! Amazing. Uh, I offered to preach today too. But actually, I see you guys have taken up the mantle of this as well, because uh, all through our worship, people have been praying about the parting of the Red Sea, which is our passage today. How when God saves us, he saves us. He is faithful. But it's a great treat for me to, to be able to preach it because uh, though last week we finally saw God draw people out of slavery, this week he finishes the job and draws them entirely out of Egypt. It's almost like part one and part two of the Exodus story. So leaving Pharaoh behind, um, I'm going to summarize uh, chapter 13. Uh, the Israelites are led by the angel of God, which is manifested as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. It's, um, probably these are the same pillar, it's just that uh, it's harder to see fire by day and cloud by night, and so they are revealed in different ways. So using this pillar, God leads the Israelites, but not straight back to their home. He leads them on a zigzaggy, indirect route until he tells them to set up camp at the edge of the Red Sea. And a quick geographical comment at this point. Um, if you look at a map of North Africa these days, which is where Egypt is, uh, the countries are drawn by straight lines. Now, these are fairly recent add-ons, and they're not actually there. In the Bible times, um, boundaries, borders to countries, were visible landmarks, mountain ranges, waters. And so the Red Sea is here. Israel had left Egypt in so much as they'd left Egypt's rule, but they'd not yet completed the exodus as they were still in Egypt's territory. The Red Sea is the border. So I'm going to be reading uh, from chapter 14, uh, from verse 10 in the ESV. Um, it's worth saying, though, that Pharaoh, back in Egypt, is beginning to regret his decision to let the people leave. His country has been crippled, a workforce numbering in the thousands has just upped and left. But then when he hears that the Israelites are meandering seemingly aimlessly within his borders, he sends his chariot army to go and retrieve them. So verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Dramatic. <laughs> what have you done bringing us in, uh, out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone. We want to serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I'll get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind, behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of the fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let's flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand, and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and the Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Dramatic stuff. As I've been preparing this, I've been so struck by how central this story is to the Old Testament and subsequently the rest of the Bible. I'm reading uh, the Bible in a year at the moment, um, which means you get you know, pockets from all over the place, you know, a bit of Psalms, a bit of Chronicles and what have you. And uh, I've just been amazed because as I've gone through this, this story has been referred to almost daily. I'll give you the Psalms as an example. Psalm 77 your way was through the sea. You led the people like a flock by the hand of Moses. Psalm 78, he divided the sea and let them pass through it, made waters stand like a heap. Psalm 80, you brought a vine, that's Israel, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Psalm 81, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea, the Exodus, is the foundational story of the Old Testament. It's the blueprint for God's saving work through the rest of the Bible. 
just as the iPhone is the granddaddy of all the smartphones, every other phone is referred to in relation to it, particularly the 3G. That's what makes reading the beginning of the Bible so exciting, because we get to see some of the primary characteristics of God. You know, what he thinks is most important to reveal about himself right at the top of the story. And in this story, God is revealed to be faithful, a mighty warrior, a savior who draws his people out of a position of certain death and into freedom. And you can map this blueprint through the whole story of the Bible. This same God fells walls, destroys armies, slays giants, while his people only really offer prayer, trust, and obedience. And the blueprint is realized finally and matchlessly when Jesus dies on the cross. What looked like certain defeat became ultimate victory as death defeated death, the innocent stood accused, and the captive set free. And he frees us for himself, that we might worship him. Amy started today with, with Exodus 15, the chapter that comes after this. That is Moses' song of celebration at being brought through the Red Sea. We're made to worship him. We are made, we are given these, I can't believe this, we are given these moments of freedom that we, man, might get to know him, God, better. Isn't that great? What a saviour. The stats say that about 86% of British people, and I know this, this is now for stats, so you know, 86% of British people will pray to God in a moment of crisis. So I imagine most of you here have. I know I have. I've done it loads of times. I remember one time I was out on a run and I got totally lost. And I, <laughs> That's why I don't run a lot. Um, <laughs> I, was, I got totally lost. I prayed to God, and he reminded me of a particular type of flower that grows near our house. It's a rhododendron. And I saw it in the bushes, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to follow, follow that and see if I get home. I'm still here, so I did. In a less trite example, I remember when my wife had a brain tumor, a brain bleed. We didn't know it at the time, but I will never forget driving in the car one in the morning, just praying fervently in my mind, God, let her live. I'm sorry about everything I've ever done. God, just let her live. And we're here. You know, he leads us through. And those are great stories in and of themselves. But God intends by these moments of crisis, these Red Sea moments, that we lead into ongoing relationship with him. And that's the Israelites' problem here. They don't actually know God very well. You know, I think you'd be forgiven in coming to the conclusion that these Israelites are, and I use this word advisedly, a bunch of ninnies. <laughs> they, God has drawn them out of 80 years of slavery in an instant. He's, and they've done nothing. You know, they've just stood back and watched God's might and power over nature. He's killed swathes of Egyptians. And suddenly, at the first sign of trouble, what do they say? Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've brought us to die in the wilderness? 
It would be so much better if we stayed there. Come on. Now, aside from the fact that we don't know for sure whether they actually said that, there's no record of it earlier in the story, we need to remember how long they've been in Egypt. 430 years. That's a long time. And God took them out in a moment. Before their slavery, there had been also 350 years of good living. You know, it had gone well. And maybe they think, oh, you know, Pharaoh's probably changed now. The, the, the ten plagues, they've taught him a lesson. We'll go back, we'll pick up our old labor roles. Maybe we'll lobby for the living wage. Everything will be fine. I've got sympathy for that. Because I had a little think about what this would mean for us. 430 years ago, in Britain, 1589, Queen Elizabeth was on the throne, but the first. Shakespeare hadn't written a play. Scotland wasn't part of the country. Parliament didn't exist. The signing of the Declaration of Independence that meant the USA existed was still about 200 years away. Can you imagine leaving all of that culture and history behind in an instant? And then to go into, well, who knows what? God's promised them this land of milk and honey, but what does that look like? Our vision as a church is to be a disciple-making community where people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. And we haven't just made that up. That's actually what God is doing with the Israelites here. He's making them into a community of disciples, people who trust and follow him. And we're all on that journey somewhere. Maybe you're just starting to know God for yourself. You're beginning to think about putting faith in Jesus. If so, you're in this story. Because God knows about your past. You know, not all of it's going to leave you, but some of it might have to change. He knows about the good and the bad that he's drawing you out of. None of us have got 430 years to leave behind, but there can be cost in following Jesus. Your family could be against your decision. There could be lifestyle changes that you have to make. Your rep at work could be damaged. And it's all very well for me to stand up here and say, hey, knowing God's better. It is. It really is. It's the great joy of my life. But it doesn't mean that the cost isn't hard, isn't real. Maybe you've been a Christian for years, but there's an area in your life that you want to get freedom from. You see it as slavery, like, the, like Egypt. You want to break out of that. Well, let me recommend to you the Keys to Freedom course that is going to be starting next term. You can sign up for that. I don't think we've opened sign up yet, but it's a great course. When I first looked at the material that's on it, God revealed to me that I had a big problem with rejection. And I mean a really big one. I remember writing down in my notebook, I actually believe that no one likes me or could like me. And as God's spirit gently provoked me to receive his freedom, you know what? I gladly received it. Oh, God, yes, now I know everyone likes me. Hooray! Now, what did I do? I resisted. 
I was afraid. I stood at the edge of the Red Sea and went, I don't know, I don't know. Because I didn't know how to live in a world where I expected people to be my friend. Isn't that sad? And of course, it's so much better to be free from the fear of rejection, to be drawn out of my personal Egypt. But putting my trust in God into something I don't know what it is, is scary. But God is faithful. The problem is I so often see God through the lens of me. I judge him by my standards. You know, I'm a fairly honest guy. Cheating is not allowed in my house. We play a lot of board games, and if you cheat, you're out. It's not happening. I'm an honest guy, and when I make a promise, you know, I, I absolutely mean to keep it. Here's the difference. When God makes a promise, he knows it will be kept. Even though I'm an honest guy, I'm changeable. If for some reason I can't keep the promise I've made, if I shouldn't have made it in the first place, I have to break it. God is not like me. He's faithful. The Egyptians didn't know their tr the true God either. They'd created false gods in their image. Warring, volatile, impulsive, false. And this, this was the culture in which the Israelites lived for four centuries. And their view of God had been misshapen by this culture. Their expectation of God then, wrongly, was that he would change his mind about them. This is why Pharaoh chased after them. Of course he knew about the power of God. He'd seen the ten plagues. He'd let the Israelites go. But on report that they were wandering around in his borders, ha, ah, their gods deserted them. Now's my chance to go and get them back. <laughs> but God is faithful. There's a bit of Hebrew wordplay um, in verse 10, it says that uh, the, the people cried out to God. And it's the same word we saw at the beginning of the story, right at the beginning of the book, when they cry out from freedom from their slavery. Moses used the same word here to reiterate, look, God heard you then, and he's committed to you. Nothing's changed. God is not changeable. He is faithful. And yet, I don't live my life like that. You know? I look at these guys and I think, come on, just trust God. Look what he's done for you so far. I know that he's going to part the Red Sea. You don't get that fine. But he's going to find a way. He's God. But I don't live like that. In fact, I'm worse. They don't have the Bible. I've got 66 books telling me how faithful he is. This is book two. Later on in the story, God's going to reveal how committed he is to his people in the person of Jesus Christ, who is so faithful to us that he went to the cross to win us to himself. I've also got a whole life story of rhododendrons and brain tumors that point to the faithfulness of God. Here's my challenge to, us, challenge to you today. Do you trust our faithful God? Do we trust him when he says he'll be with us when we share our faith? Do we trust him when he says he will comfort us? Or do we turn to chocolate, a glass of wine, other distractions? 
Do we trust him when he says he'll provide for us? And he challenges us to pledge just a little bit more. I say this because you guys have all given them in already, so you know, no guilt here. But also no guilt. These are, these are examples from my life. You know? Here's the good news. God is faithful even when we're not. Because if, like me, you don't trust him fully, he's not disappointed in you. He's not going to give up on you. But he does want more for you. So I've got some sympathy for the Israelites. Moses, though, is a little more exasperated. (laughs) Verse 13 Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. (laughs) The ESV is quite generous there. Apparently you can translate that. Just sit down and shut up. It'll be fine. (laughs) Curiously, though, God says to Moses in the next verse, why would you cry to me? Surely then, despite his swift rebuke to the Israelites, Moses has taken his panicked plea, uh, the people's panicked plea, to God, and actually got a similar telling off. Moses here is both representing God to man, and man to God. To the Israelites, he reveals the mind of God. And to God, he prays on behalf of the Israelites. In this, Moses is a type of Christ, an image of who Jesus is going to be. Because Jesus is God and man, the ultimate mediator. If you know Jesus through his word, by his spirit, you know God. On the other side of the coin, through Jesus God learns what it's like to be man. What it's like to know pain, suffering, frustration, rejection, tiredness, and ultimately death. Which means he's able to love us all the more because he understands us. Jesus represents God to man and man to God. And Moses foreshadows that here. But in foreshadowing Jesus, there's actually something else going on here too. God works with Moses. Can I have verse 16 up on the screen? God says to Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand, which has got the staff in it. It's confusing. It's like, which one's he doing? You know, Just holding a staff in his hand. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Moses is commanded to divide the sea, which seems fairly beyond his power. (laughs) Thankfully, verse 21 gives us a little more clarity on this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord, thank goodness, drove back the sea by a strong east wind and made the sea a dry land. So who moves it? Both, actually. God is working 
with and through Moses. And we actually see this throughout the Exodus story. In uh, chapter 3, in the story of the burning bush, uh, verse 8, God says, I have come down to deliver my people out of Egypt. And two verses later, he says to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people out of Egypt. God works through Moses to bring about the Exodus. Without Moses' activity, God's people wouldn't be free to be God's people. Now, obviously, God parts the sea, okay? No man can hope to hold back the water. I'm sure there's a James Bay joke in there somewhere. But he chose to use Moses. And this is true for us. Jesus is building his church, and only he can do that. But he uses us to bring it about. Just as Moses couldn't part the sea without God's intervention, you and I can't bring anyone to faith in Jesus. That's a work of the Spirit. It's not in our power. But the word in verse 21 that we have translated wind is a word ruach, which also means the Spirit. Moses was commanded to lift his staff in his hand, and when he did, the Spirit blew. We are commanded to tell people about Jesus. We can't make anyone believe. But when we're obedient and partner with God, the Spirit blows. Like Jesus, we are called to represent God to man, which means sharing our faith, which means lifting up your hand as Moses did and laying it on a sick person and expecting the Spirit, the wind, the ruach to move. How often do you go to work thinking, oh, I'm going to represent God to man today? But that's who we are. Children of grace, bought at a cost, free to live for him. We're also called to represent man to God, which means taking our friends to him in prayer, which means interceding for our country in the midst of political turmoil. We, like Moses, are to take the pleas of our people in petition to God. People who know God are free to make a difference. Through God, Moses parted the Red Sea and the Israelites walked across on dry land. The Exodus was complete. What had seemed like an impossible situation, certain death, God used to save his people in such a way that only he got glory. Even the Egyptians caught on. You know, having been held back from the Israelites by God's protective cloud, he then lets them run into the very midst of the sea. And the ground that had been, you know, good enough for walking on was no good for chariot wheels. It's a bit like trying to cycle in wet sand on road tires. The Egyptians have a final moment of realization. Oh, no, the Lord's fighting for Israel. And as they turn tail, the waters come crashing over them. The Egyptians, Israel's persecutors, their slavers, are literally washed away. Passing through water, the Israelites are led by Moses across the border of Egypt into the mountain region of Sinai beyond, with the promised land ahead. 
I'm going to finish in just a, just a moment. But before we close the book on the Egyptians, let's take a little step back and see how this story fits in with God's grand story and where we see ourselves. If we look back to Genesis, where man and woman were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, all was well until the snake, the enemy of God and freedom, tricked them and enslaved them to sin, leaving them and all their ancestors desperate for a redeemer to bruise the head of the snake and release them from the chains of sin. This is the story we have in Exodus. The Israelites, they were fruitful in Egypt. Their numbers multiplied until the snake-like Egyptian king dealt deceitfully, set himself against God, and enslaved the Israelites. But they're freed by the spilling of the blood of the lamb and of the firstborn. The Israelites released from slavery an instant. But the job wasn't finished. They were still in the boundaries of Egypt until our story today. In the same way, when we put our trust in Jesus, in the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the firstborn, we are immediately set free from slavery to sin. But the job's not finished until we too pass through waters. When we're baptized, we enact the exodus. The sea in the ancient world was symbolic of chaos, danger, rebellion, death. In biblical imagery, you see beasts who set themselves against God rising up out of the sea. When Jesus walked on the water, it wasn't just a miraculous midnight stroll. He was demonstrating his power over, and authority over all things. When the prophet Isaiah harks back to the parting of the Red Sea, he says, you cut Rahab into pieces, you pierce the dragon. Rahab was a, a mythological water god and Egypt is the dragon, and both are defeated in our story today. When Jesus commands us to be baptized, it's not an empty ceremony. It's not some religious box-ticking exercise. Rather, when we go down into the water, it's an identification with this story. For when God separated the waters, tore Rahab into pieces, he demonstrated his power over creation, the chaos of the sea, and delivered his people from Egypt. In the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, he threw down the dragon. He crushed the head of the serpent, defeating the ancient enemy, and he commanded his people be let go from the power of sin. And when we're raised out of the water, we're like the Israelites on the other side of the sea. Verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day, from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. In passing through the waters of baptism, we leave our sin behind, dead. We are now alive in Christ. Amen.